So we've been talking about the early church in the Acts community. The church has had its first high moment with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the healing of a lame man. Church has had its first low moment with Ananias and Sapphira and a, a partnership that wasn't honest. The church has had its first administrative moment. Pastor Isaac spoke about that last week when they elected deacons because people were hungry and, and the logistics had to be handled. But today, the church is going to have its first long-winded moment for Stephen is going to preach in Acts chapter 7. It is the longest speech-slash-sermon in the book of Acts. It goes on and on for 51 verses. And 51 verses is a pretty long sermon in the Bible, isn't it? No one likes a long sermon. I don't. Do you? Do you? Now, if you were Puritans in colonial America in the 17th century, Puritans sat through sermons that were more than an hour in length twice a week, about 7,000 hours of sermons in the average life of the Puritan, 17th century. If you investigate, there seems to be a little dispute over who's actually preached the longest sermon. In 1955, Time magazine carried an article about the Southern California farmer turned preacher seems that this gentleman, late Clinton Lacey, had a professor, and his professor preached a 24-hour long sermon, so Clinton Lacey thought it double or nothing would be good. He preached for 48 hours and 19 minutes. 48 hours and 19 minutes started on a Saturday night, ended at Monday, 12:19. What's the topic of a sermon that lasts for 48 hours? He says, quote, the topic of this sermon was the entire Bible and the atomic bomb, just for fun. Remember, 1955. Now, supposedly, someone else, I don't know, this gentleman, Dr. Donald Thomas, came along in 1978, and he preached a 93-hour sermon. And someone asked, rightly, after first service, was there anyone there to even listen? And can it be a sermon if no one listened? The story goes that after the 93-hour long sermon, that is when the Beatitude was written, the one you might have heard, blessed is the preacher whose train of thought has a caboose. <laughs> but I like equally as well the little rhyme, the service would be nicer if the sermon were conciser. Here we are with Stephen, 51 verses long. No one likes a long sermon. Maybe that's part of our problem when we get to Acts chapter 7. I've been listening for several weeks in my car as I drive. A couple of years ago, the elders gave all of the pastors the, the Bible on CD, which is a wonderful way. I encourage you, download it on your iPod or any, any way you can while you're driving and moving around just to get a little more Bible in your life. But I've been trying this sermon from Acts chapter 7, and I have a hard time staying focused 51 verses later. Here's the context for Stephen's sermon. Remember, last week he's elected a deacon of the church. He's waiting tables last week. But now the Bible says Stephen is full of power and grace. He's doing wonders among the people. The Bible also says many Jews have come now to Jerusalem from all around the territory. So there are a lot of new ideas and Stephen is debating. The Bible says none can hold up to the wisdom of Stephen. 
And that makes him unpopular. They don't like that. So they've decided, they've instigated to bring charges against him. The charges are that he's speaking against God and against the law of Moses. They find a couple of witnesses who will come forward and who will lie and say, yes, this is what Stephen's been doing. And he, he's actually saying the temple's going to be destroyed, that that's what Jesus taught. They bind him. They take him in front of the Sanhedrin. He's now in front of the rulers for Jerusalem. And, and they simply ask him the question, Stephen, are these charges true? That's the question. And now Stephen responds, and I'm going to invite you to listen to a little bit of what I've been listening to for a few weeks. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, okay. they sold him as a slave into you, Egypt. You realize we're only on Joseph. You realize he started all the way back with Abraham? He, the, the question was, are you guilty of these charges? And he went all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history. Now, the guy's in a lot of trouble. Capital punishment. That's what he has coming to him. If he's guilty, a yes or a no would be really smart right now. Are you guilty or not, Stephen? And he goes all the way back to the beginning of the sacred story, and he begins to talk and talk and talk. Does your train of thought have a caboose? What is he doing? Some people say, you know, the reason I can't listen to this is everybody knows this sacred story. There's nothing new here. It's just kind of a dry recitation of a story everyone knows. Some people say, this is just too much intricate detail. Let's skip over. Let's get to the part where they get in a boat and go on a mission or someone gets beat up or something exciting happens. It's very easy to skip over the top of these long sections in the book of Acts. What is Stephen doing? I believe that he's carefully selecting. He's just dropping down on bits of Israel's history, building his case, building an argument for the situation he has found himself in. There's, there's thousands of years of history. He can't do that in 51 verses, so he begins picking and choosing. Now, some people say, you, you know, Stephen doesn't have all the details right here. He quotes his Bible, the Torah, about 30 times in those 51 verses. That's a lot. And some people are aware he doesn't always get it right. Sometimes the location is wrong. Sometimes it's not the right person, it's, and it happened before or after. Some people wonder about Stephen 
He's kind of sloppy when he quotes his scripture. But he's not the only one in the Bible who has that problem. And in fact, we today even have that problem sometimes, don't we? Maybe there's a bigger point to be made than Stephen and sloppy quoting his scripture. There's something else happening here. Here's my idea of what I believe is happening and what I think the Stephen sermon is about. He begins with observations on Abraham. Abraham, who was promised a land, promised a location, and it never happens for Abraham. In fact, he spends more time outside of the land and the promise God gave him than inside, enjoying it. But yet, God is with him. And then he moves on from Abraham to observations about Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson. And here's Joseph, back and forth, four times from Canaan. And Joseph, apparently a wanderer also. This seems to be the story of the people of God. They move around a lot. From Joseph, Stephen moves on to observations about Moses. Moses, who's still trying to settle, but he's also on the move in Sinai, in Egypt, and then at Sinai, in the desert. Moses and those people, three 40-year chunks of time Stephen goes through. Finally, at the end, just, just barely, they touch down in that land that was promised, but mostly on the move all the time, which for me is building a case that maybe there isn't a holy zone or a holy ground or a holy place the people need to be so worried about. Stephen finally ends with observations on David and Joshua and Solomon. Solomon, the one who built the temple, now at last in Jerusalem, there is a temple fit for a god. No longer does God have to go with this portable tent in the wilderness wanderings. Got a real place, respectable place. If you need God, if you need to access the divinity, you can go to Jerusalem to the temple. Finally, God's going to sit still and be available. However, Stephen likens the building of that temple to the idolatry of the golden calf, the Israelites building the golden calf. He questions, how could human hands build a house that's appropriate for God? Yes, the land has been given, but you misunderstand if you think the land and the temple and the location is what God has been about. Because have you noticed, as you've been on the move, Israel, God's been on the move with you? That's what Stephen's saying in his sermon. And also be careful because all of those who've come before, hmm, Moses and Joseph and, and the one Jesus, all of those who came to deliver you, you put all of those to death. And, and by the way, Stephen's kind of next in line. Stephen's sermon, I believe, is helping them to understand the mobility of God. And now Stephen the accused becomes Stephen the accuser. Here are just the last couple of verses of his sermon as he gets rather ugly. He begins name-calling in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You, you've received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you've not obeyed it. It's not good to start name-calling 
Because if you just read ahead, you see the crowd had a very visceral, physical reaction. And, and they, they took Stephen and they began to mob him and stone him. And the text goes on to say that while Stephen was being beaten, he looked up as if the heavens were open. He can see God and Jesus standing right next to him. When someone mentioned to me this morning what a beautiful image that is, as if God and Jesus are standing, attending, aware, in, involved, comforting while Stephen is being beaten. The Bible says then that Stephen died. Now, I have always long had the understanding in the book of Acts, what was happening was there an eager, excited group of Christians that every day they committed their energy and their resources and they went out and they evangelized and they came back and they celebrated and prayed and strengthened for the next day and went out again and again and again and this is how the church grew and that today, if we would follow that model, our churches would do the same. Yet, if you carefully read chapter 8, verse 1, this is really what happened after Stephen was killed. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered, verse 4, preached the word wherever they went. The reality is that persecution came, and persecution meant they could no longer cluster in Jerusalem. They could no longer stay together inside their temple, inside of their holy zone. They now had to scatter, and when they found themselves in scattered locations, they began to speak and witness about their God and about their Jesus. Indeed, I believe what Stephen is doing in his sermon is setting the stage. He speaks about a people who are on the move because the church is about to be a church on the move. They're going to have to scatter. But look, Stephen just told him, it's all right because your God goes on the move with you. God wasn't located in a place or a space or a tent or a dwelling. God was always on the move with Israel, through Israel's history, all of this time. So that when those first Christians go out and do what Jesus asked them to do, they can be comfortable knowing God is going with them. When we began our conversation in Acts, Acts 1.8, I suggested, is the mission statement for the entire book before Jesus leaves. And he looks at the disciples and says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. You will be the ones who speak about the grace you've seen. You know about forgiveness and reconciliation. You've seen with your eyes and now you'll be witnesses and you'll go to the ends of the earth with this. Just like the drama and the music presented this morning, if you've tasted grace, if you've experienced grace, the next thing you do is speak about it. And there is a traffic flow going on in the book of Acts. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. Stephen is helping them understand that. For several months, I've had my nose in and out of a book called The Mission-Shaped Church, written by the Church of England. Now, for many, many years, everyone has known that, the church, that, that England and Christianity is over. And many, many years people have been saying, so shall America go. As it has happened in England, so it will be in America. So that now America is called the post-Christian generation, just like England has been. This is an interesting book to me because a group of rather candid and honest church leaders for the Church of England, bishops, have sat together over the course of a few years 
and evaluated what happened and what must happen for the church in England to have any effect at all. The book's called The Mission-Shaped Church, How the Church Must Adjust Its Mission. What is startling to me is how their descriptions really do fit America now when they say, gone are the days when people flock to the cathedral and the chapel. Culture has largely figured out how to live without church and how to live without God. That's why it's called post-Christian. They really don't need us. It's not that Christian faith is dormant or lacking. It's just non-existent, they say in their book. And now we have all this variety. We live within society, and, and geographical location isn't going to matter. Just because there's a church on the corner, just because there are 20 churches in Yucaipa, just because we have Mesa Grande up the street, a Christian school available to people, doesn't mean anyone will come. Because people no longer come to the church in the cathedral They've stopped doing that in a post-Christian experience. They don't come to us very frequently. Last night, someone wandered in here about 6 o'clock, and all the doors were locked. Just Harold was upstairs working, and he actually phoned me and said, um, there's a woman in the church, but I don't know who she is, and, and she's a stranger. Somehow she got in. She came because she needed something. She needed food, and she needed a hotel. But that's rare. That is really the only time people come knocking on the doors of Christian churches now. Christian churches will have to get over the idea that people will come to us. It's an adjustment of our mission. When I read books, I oftentimes take in the front cover here and just do bullet points of the aha moment that happened for me when I read the book. And for several weeks and months, I've been looking at this bullet point that says, the come to us strategy is over. Culture no longer values the Christian presence. It is a go-to-them mission now. It is a go-to-them mission, and it's going to look a little bit different when we go. You know, the, the students from the academy were up here this morning and presenting their gift to the church. And I know while they were presenting, some people were thinking, why is that music so loud? And why don't those kids, what do they have to come to church in jeans? And can't those kids iron their pants? And what is that they're doing? We so are disconnected with culture, we're not even sure what they're acting out. Some of us don't understand the 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 binging that was taking place. We don't know what cutting is, that, that teenagers go through this ritual of cutting themselves to relieve pain. By the way, Pastor Dustin tells me in June 14, he's bringing the director of adolescence for, from the Behavioral Medical Center, and there will be a meeting offered here at our church for parents dealing with teenage mental health issues, like cutting, like bulimia, like medications, like drugs, like all sorts of things most of us don't understand because we're, we're disconnected so far from culture. I just want to pause for a minute and tell you we featured the students today because they asked if they could come. And we might not appreciate their music and the way they dress, and we might not understand what it is they go through in their struggles in life, but guess what? They asked to be at church today. And the same with Cedric's group. He called up and said, could I come to my home church and bring my friends with me? So it is now we live with all of this variety and we're, we don't really understand each other and ourselves, but the mission of the Christian church has always adapted as it's moved. The gospel doesn't change. 
Don't go home and say, I, I said that. The gospel never changes, but the mission must always adapt. So it is, people may not end up in here dressed in suits and ties and sitting reverently singing Kathy with her hymns. So it is church might start to look different in the world, which is what they're discovering in England. Church is happening in coffee shops and recovery groups. It's happening in small circles of study. It's happening in sports partnerships and business clubs. Church is happening when moms get together and gather in locations. Wherever people gather and the resurrected Lord is experienced, Church is happening in some shape or form, and, and it looks very different, and that frightens some of us. When we go from Jerusalem out these doors, I believe our task is primarily to listen. Because we are so disconnected from the world, we will have to listen to even understand what's happening in the world, what's happening in the lives of people, to understand where they come from and what they experience, who they think the power in the universe is and where they think they will go when this is over. We'll have to listen primarily when we go from this place, when we live in a post-Christian nation. We went yesterday with the eighth grade students from the academy. Now, we go once a month to our Villa Calamesa. Judy Yakish for two years, has been coordinating this project. All these students have gone more than once, cycle through one month at a time with the pastoral staff. We pull weeds, and we paint fences, and we clean toilets. And you don't like to clean toilets, I know. But we do it, don't we? We do the things we wouldn't usually do at home for people who can't do it for themselves. Yesterday, when we were there with the eighth grade students, we were out in the yard pulling weeds. And the conversation just erupted. You know, Pastor Chris, do you think when Genesis says, let there be light, that God meant light on planet Earth? Or do you think that's when the Big Bang happened, Pastor Chris? And what do you think in the Genesis story? When, do you think that means there are other dimensions? Did God just start God's work on Earth that day? Is there something else that was there? And Pastor Chris, what do you think when the Bible says? And the conversation in the yard while we were trying to pull weeds was... So fun and fascinating, and, and soon all the students went indoors because this sweet lady makes snacks for them every time. And they were gone, and I'm left in the yard, and here's the woman hunched over with a walking stick and a straw hat to protect her from the sun. Now, I've known her for almost two years, but this day she said to me, well, that was an interesting conversation you just had. Pastor Chris... She never called me that. Pastor Chris, they call you. Could I ask a question too? I said, sure, sure, sure. She said, I've heard that it says somewhere in the Bible, in my father's house are many, many mansions. Do you think that that means there's a di another dimension we'll live in someday? 75 years old thinking about what's coming next. Down the loop of the trailer park, here's another woman who put money in my hand yesterday who said, let me just pay you a little bit, dear, for you all coming out here. Maybe gas money for the bus to get over here. I said, we can never accept your money. Put your money away, Mary Lou. We can't take your money. This is our responsibility to be here. She said, no, but every time you come, you, it's just when I need something, you all are like my savior. And I say, yes, as it's to be. 
The whole church is praying for you, Mary Lou. So my question is, if, if they never come to this church, if, if we keep going and none of them ever come and put their clothes on and sit in the pews and join the community and sing the praises of God, if they never come, have we failed at our mission? If we never get any more members because we walked out the doors of this church and took the good news to this community, have we failed at what Jesus asked us to do? It is a very new day in the mission of the Christian church. And the way we measure our success will have to also be different. I just think it's, it's measured like this. Wherever the risen Christ is experienced, there is the church. Which means, then, we can't stay in Jerusalem. We have to go out. We have to be worldly on purpose. From this place to the ends of the earth, give us the courage for a mission that's adjusting with a gospel that is ever so stable, the good news of our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray.